Admirably, she stanched the blood with her kisses, but he rebuffed her caresses. He had not come to repeat the ceremonies of a secret passion, protected by a world of dry leaves and furtive paths through the forest. The dagger warmed itself against his chest, and underneath pounded liberty, ready to spring. A lustful yearning dialogue raced down the pages like a rivulet of snakes, and one felt it had all been decided from eternity. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today I'll be talking with Frederick Aldama, who has selected Julio Cortazar's short story, Continuity of Parks, to read and discuss. Cortazar's short story was originally published in 1964. The story is only two paragraphs long, which means that we'll have time for Frederick to read it in the Spanish original and in the English translation. Frederick Luis Aldama, also known as Professor Latinx, is the Jacob and Francis Sanger Massacre Chair in the Humanities at the University of Texas, Austin, where he is also founder and director of the Latinx Pop Lab. Frederick is an award-winning author, co-author, editor, and co-editor of over 48 books, including an, uh, an, his uh, Eisner Award-winning uh, volume, Latinx Superheroes in Mainstream Comics. Frederick is also editor and co-editor of nine academic press book series, including Latino Graphics that publishes Latinx comics. Frederick is the producer and co-creator with D.G. Sign of the first documentary on the history of Latinx superheroes, as well as founder of the annual BIPOC Pop in Austin. Frederick is the author of several children's books, including The Adventures of Chupacabra Charlie, published in English and Spanish, and Con Papa with Papa, as well as co-creator of the animation short Carlitos Chupacabra, currently on Worldwide Film Festival Tour. In 2022, Frederick was inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters and Ohio State University's Office of Diversity and Inclusion Hall of Fame. Frederick is also one of the founding uh, members of uh, Project Narrative, and I'm d delighted that he's continued his association with Project Narrative, um, even as he's moved on to the University of Texas. Uh, Frederick, is there anything you'd like our listeners to pay special attention to as you read Continuity of Parks? No, um, I think um, we're going to just, we're going to first listen to this exceptional uh, translation of the the Spanish, um, and just soak that up. Um, I'll, 
I just have a little bit of the Spanish in front of me here, so I'll read some of that just to give you a feel for what the Spanish sounds like. But I also, before we jump into this, Jim, I want to thank you, one, for that great uh, introduction, but also just to mention here for our listeners what an extraordinary honor it is for me to be here in conversation with you, someone who has um, so significantly added to and shaped um, our deep understanding of how narrative in both fiction and nonfiction forms function. Uh, so thank you, Jim, and thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. Well, thank you for those kind words, um, and it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you, Frederick. So let, let's get on to the story. Yeah, so continuity of parks, and the Spanish original was uh, Continuidad de los Parques uh, by Julio Cortazar, and it begins as this. He had begun to read the novel a few days before. He had put it aside because of some urgent business, opened it again on his way back to the estate by train. He allowed himself a slowly growing interest in the plot, in the drawing of characters. That afternoon, after writing a letter to his agent, and discussing with the manager of his estate a matter of joint ownership. He returned to the book in the tranquility of his study, which looked out upon the park with its oaks. Sprawled in his favorite armchair, with his back to the door, which would otherwise have bothered him as an irritating possibility for intrusions, he let his left hand caress once and again the green velvet upholstery and set to reading the final chapters. Without effort, his memory retained the names and images of the protagonists the illusion took hold of him almost at once. He tasted the almost perverse pleasure of disengaging himself line by line from all that surrounded him and feeling at the same time that his head was relaxing comfortably against the green velvet of the armchair with its high back. That the cigarettes were still within reach of his hand, that beyond the great windows, the afternoon air danced under the oak trees in the park. Word by word, immersed in the sordid dilemma of the hero and heroine, letting himself go toward where the images came together and took on color and movement, he was witness to woman arrived first apprehensive now the lover came in his face cut by the backlash of a brunch 
Admirably, she stanched the blood with her kisses, but he rebuffed her caresses. He had not come to repeat the ceremonies of a secret passion, protected by a world of dry leaves and furtive paths through the forest. The dagger warmed itself against his chest and underneath pounded liberty, ready to spring. A lustful yearning dialogue raced down the pages like a rivulet of snakes, and one felt it had all been decided from eternity. Even those caresses which writhed about the lover's body as though wishing to keep him there, to dissuade him from it, sketched admirably the figure of that other body it was necessary to destroy. Nothing had been forgotten. Alibis, unforeseen hazards, possible mistakes. From this hour on, each instant had its use minutely assigned. The cold-blooded double re-examination of the details was barely interrupted for a hand to caress a cheek. It was beginning to get dark. Without looking at each other now, rigidly fixed upon the task which awaited them, they separated at the cabin door. She was to follow the trail that led north. On the path leading in the opposite direction, he turned for a moment to watch her running with her hair let loose. He ran in turn, crouching among the trees and hedges, until he could distinguish in the yellowish fog of dusk the avenue of trees leading up to the house. The dogs were not supposed to bark, and they did not bark. The estate manager would not be there at this hour, and he was not. He went up the three porch steps and entered. Through the blood galloping in his ears came the woman's words, first a blue parlor, then a gallery, then a carpeted stairway. At the top, two doors. No one in the first bedroom. No one in the second. The door of the salon. And then the knife in his hand. The light from the great windows. The high back of an armchair covered in green velvet. The head of the man in the chair reading a novel. Excellent. Yeah, this is uh, really one of my, uh, Jim, as you know, I love this story. I love this story, uh, not just to teach, but also um, a big inspiration for my own book of flash fiction um, Uh and the concision of form, uh, you know, and all of the kinds of narrative devices, shaping devices, structures that are so efficiently and concentrated you know, in right. this story have been a real inspiration for me. Um, yeah, uh, the Spanish, and unfortunately I don't have the the original Spanish in front of me, but I do remember, um, you know, the, 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 of course, the cadence and the, mm-hmm. the syntax, the, the language, the words, they give it 
a slightly different feeling of flow. The, uh-huh. the you know the the structures are the same. Um, the shaping devices largely remain the same. Of course, the language había empezado a leer la novela unas días antes. It it has you know. He had begun to read the novel a few days before. It has, uh, if you can hear it, the yeah. cadence, the, the sounds are, are very different. But the actual story and what it does, it happens in both. Right, right. Okay, yeah. So, uh, excellent. Um, so, maybe we could, you know, just start with a kind of, you know, general... Uh, sort of initial uh, description, right? So we talk about this as a as an example of metafiction, that's, that is fiction about its own processes. And I would say that this particular metafiction seems interested in exploring the power of fiction. So, you know, how would you talk about some of the ways that the story conducts that exploration of the power of fiction? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. So, one of so I don't know about you, but I like Bartleby. I love Bar- John Barth. I love you know mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. all those guys. But there's something kind of precious about their fictions, their meta fictions. Um, the balloon. There's there are examples that where I do feel a. a an invitation to experience a whole range of emotions, but there's often something about their metafictions that keeps me somewhat at bay. I get that. I get the pleasure. I experience the pleasure of the craftfulness of the storytelling. There's a kind of emphasis on the cerebral in a way that maybe this is more affectively engaging. Yes. That's sort of what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so at the same time, it's got that wonderful trick, you know, this trick of, you know, well, I call it kind of onto- the interpenetration of disparate ontologies, the one, right. the man reading in the estate, and then, of course, the lovers uh, with their plan to kill right. The man <laughs> reading in the green velvet chair, who is right, right. Yeah, so um, the, you know, narratologists would say that's oh, that's metalepsis. You know that that interpenetration of ideologies of ontologies, yeah. rather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, that's great. So one way he does it, I think, and I think this maybe is a way to get at both the affective and the metafictional, metaleptic thing or the interpenetration is. Uh, the way in which the story sort of works by setting up a relation between the reader within the story and then the reader of the story, right? So the estate manager reading in the story, and so we're reading about his reading, right? And so there's this kind of doubling of immersion, right? So he becomes immersed in what he's reading, and then we're immersed in both, I would say, mm-hmm. his, his act of reading and in what he's reading. Um, does that make sense to yeah. you? And, and yeah. How, how no. does that help? How, how does that help get us at yeah, some of so, the emo- emotional, st- affective side of things? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because we can even talk about 
what Jeanette so gracefully and beautifully distinguishes for us with the paratextual elements of the narrative. Um, this one, this paratextual element, the title being mm -hmm. more in control of the author, um, right. but already with the title, we're, we're being guided to create a continuity between these these right. two spaces. So the the estate and the oaks and the the grandness of the park, and then the you know the encounter, the unfolding of basically what will become the murder of the yes. gentleman reading. So already you know Cortazar is directing. He's kind of loosely setting up that continuity that we're going to create in our minds. Um, but what I, <clears throat> what I also love about the, I mean, how it, how it draws us in is precisely a kind of meta commentary in a very narrative driven way, not in an obvious kind of, this is right. my trick Discursive way. way to, yeah. yeah. Um, what we do when we read fiction and okay. how it how in a way it's like as literally as we read sentence to sentence from the beginning mm -hmm. were if you stop the second you could reflect on your own immersion your own right Right. Past, you know this this journey of immersion that's happening. Right, right, and the description of of how he becomes immersed is familiar, right? I mean, we could recognize that, right? Uh, you know, the the external world sort of drops away, um, you know, as we sink into our chairs and we and we dive into the the narrative world that's being represented, right? So that there's that what he's doing is particular. To him and his particular situation, but it's also something that's familiar to anybody who's read a lot of fiction and, and goes back to it because it's pleasurable and, and sort of takes us outside of our immediate uh, surroundings. Absolutely. Let me ask you this, Jim, because there's, for me, an important moment here where, you know, this, this line he tasted the almost perverse pleasure of disengaging himself line by line from all that surrounded him and feeling at the same time that his head was relaxing comfortably against the green velvet of the armchair with its high back, that the cigarettes were still within reach of his hand and beyond the great windows, the afternoon air danced under the oak trees in the park. Let me ask you, you know, there is, for me, immersion, affective, cog, you know, imaginative, right. but right. always when I'm reading or watching a movie or a television show, uh, no matter what, my body is still in tune with where it is right. and no, its environments, yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I think it's important. It's kind of getting at the, you know, what I tend to call the double consciousness of reading fiction, right? On, on the one hand, we are immersed and we, you know, uh, like to think that, uh, okay, we're sort of observing what's happening 
uh, in this sort of autonomous world, characters acting autonomously, and, and we can have real emotions about them and so on. And yet at the same time, there's this tacit uh, understanding that we're, what we're doing is reading something that's invented. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and then that, that tacit knowledge is also connected, I think, to what you're saying about the awareness of, uh, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm, I still know where my body is and, and things like that. So it's, I think it's really, a, a, you know, a kind of remarkable phenomenon mm-hmm. about the human, the human imagination, you know, mm-hmm. that, that the imagination can do this. Yeah. And, and yet, and yet, you know, we have, we can go all the way in and yet we also know that we, we're, you know, still uh, rooted in someplace else, you know, the actual world. Absolutely. You know, this um, gets me thinking too about the power of what I call elsewhere in my work of the generative device of the discourse. And mm-hmm. because if we strip the story back, what actually is this story? It's a story, it's a story of, well, what? A guy reading, um, you know, a book uh, about, you know, these two lovers who basically want to take out, you know, the husband. Um, right, presumably. Presumably, right. Then that's a gap yeah. that we f- we fill in, right? Oh, so yeah, you know, that's the motivation for the for the you know the lover coming to yeah <laughs> coming with the dagger, right? So yeah. if we were to if we were to kind of you know do what we do, which is to kind of go back and kind of separate story from discourse here, um, mm-hmm. that's our implied story, say, and then right. the discourse that is the way Cortazar decides to give shape to that story is what is so extraordinary and for me in my work as i think you know it's that the generative device of the discourse that is for me the most powerful the most powerful space for study and enriched understanding of how fiction works Right, and it's the discourse that really um, makes, you know, the continuity, right, that, that you're talking about. I mean, that it's, it's there where the, um, the, you know, interpenetration of ontologies uh, gets carried out, right? And that's, mm-hmm. so when we just said, oh, that's the implied story, right, we didn't quite capture the, that interpenetration of ontologies. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, right. Um, and, and so that's, that's it. And then, you know, I think uh, um, one of the things that stands out for me is the way in which that continuity, that interpenetration sort of happens in that um, there's a kind of, the, the Cortazar's discourse, parts of it, once he starts talking about the lovers, that discourse applies both to um, the estate manager's reading and our reading, right? So that, so something like mm-hmm. you, you know, if we can just pick out a sentence in a way, right? The um, uh, well, or a couple sentences, right? Um, mm-hmm. The dagger warmed itself against his chest, and underneath pounded liberty, ready to spring. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're in there, and this could be. This could be exactly the text that 
mm-hmm. the estate manager's reading, right? Yeah. But, but then we then we get the next sentence, a lustful yearning dialogue raced down the pages like a rivulet of snakes, and one felt it had all been decided from eternity, right? And then okay, now we're there's a description of the dialogue, we're not the dialogue itself, right? Yeah. Uh, um, so so the there's the discourse plays with that um, sort of immersion uh, all the way and then just immersion into his reading um, and then inviting us to reflect on our own reading. Yeah, really. The the discourse gives us like those three levels, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And it, um, oh boy, there's just so much to already think about and unpack in those two sentences, those two different phrases, sentences. So, um, are we, Jim, is this actually an, another narrator that's being, I mean, you know, that rivulet, the rivulet, yeah. you know, it right. of snakes is not the same voice as we, you know, heard so far. So, uh, right. So what what is this? Is this a third level narrator? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's a great question. I think um, one way to read it. I don't know that it's you know this is definitive reading, right? But we'd say okay. So we have the the, the external narrator. He had begun to read the novel a few days before, right? And then um, and pretty much we stay with that. Although we start then to move to internal focalization, you know, the perspective mm-hmm. of the estate manager, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and then I think we start to get further in, um, you know, in that the dagger warmed itself against his chest. That could be the voice of the text mm-hmm. that he's reading, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, then... Then the lustful yearning dialogue raced down the pages like a rivulet of snakes. I, I, I think you're you're right. I mean, I agree with you, and it's you know I compliment your ear to say, all right, that's not exactly the voice of the external narrator who started with he had begun to read the novel. Mm-hmm. So so I think it opens up the possibility that okay, this is now um, this narrator kind of still working within the consciousness of the estate manager, right? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 for him, it seems like a rivulet of snakes, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. the one felt that had been decided from eternity, that's, that's, that's his consciousness again, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and because it's, it, because it's his, it pulls us back out, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so it, you know, again, what you're saying about the discourse, it's really, <laughs> there's so much going on, and, it's, and it shifts. Yeah. Right? We start outside, we go inside, we go further inside, we come out again, we go back in, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, re- it's really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, I was yeah. just going to say, too, that what's, and it's the same, of course, in the Spanish um, ver- uh, original, but... The sen- at the sentence and level, even the syntax, we have shifts even in narrative speed, and uh-huh. I think that's pretty remarkable as well. You know, um, if we compare 
you know, the first, the immersion, say, stage, the stage of actually being, reading, you know, the text that the protagonist is reading, and then that shift without looking at each other now after the break, we have very distinguishable, identifiable speeds that go from kind of slow to fast. And I think that this is yet another remarkable kind of genius of this particular story. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, that's nice to know about the, you know, how it works in the Spanish. And I agree with you about the speed. And then this, you know, difference here after the paragraph break is that now we have you know, full internal focalization mm-hmm. of of the lover, right? And so it's his perspective that we're getting here. And again, it it's it could be his perspective in the text that the that the protagonist is reading, mm-hmm. right? Uh, <laughs> which is which is I think crucial for the the last line, right? I mm-hmm. mean that. And that, and the the way in which we are, um, you know, um, following his perspective, his his travel, right, and the pace and and all that, right. And so then, the door of the salon, and then the knife in his hand, the light from the great windows, right. And this is these are descriptions of things, right, but sort of imbued with the idea of action. Right, because he's moving. We he he hasn't stopped moving, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he's he, and it's moving, and then he's perceiving. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. this is what he's you know feel. I have the knife in my hand. Yeah. I can see the light from the great windows. The high back of the armchair covered in green velvet, and then the head of the man in the chair reading a novel. And there, that's it. Seems to me that's where uh, Cortazar really takes advantage of the way in which he's worked with the discourse and this immersion because th- then suddenly um, we, we, even as we stay with the character's perception, we're, we add this whole other thing, right? Oh, the man in the green, uh, the man in the green chair reading the novel is this guy that, you know, we've been, uh, who had begun to read the novel a few days before, right? And there's, yeah. there's the, the the uh, interpenetration of the ontology, right? So, yeah. So, and of course, the the great pleasure along with it that we as readers experience by kind of putting this puzzle together at the end, right? Exactly, right, right, exactly, right. And it just comes there with that, you know, the head of the man in the chair reading a novel. It's like, oh, wait, you yeah. Know, and it's and then the story ends, and then we're left to sort of, as you say, put the puzzle together and then think about. You know the the pleasure and the um, and the play and 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 so on, right? Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, as we're on this subject, then, because um, as you know, as we're reading this story, and then of course, if we begin and we if we love this and we begin to read others of Cortazar, um, we also start to build an image of the implied author and uh-huh. what is what you know for for you Jim coming at this what what did you start to kind of 
imagine, you know, as an implied author here. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, since <laughs> you're asking me the question, uh, I think the first effect is that it really makes that Im- implied author-audience relationship sort of, that becomes foregrounded, right? And it becomes way more important than, than you know, the, the, the kind of cliched or at least conventional idea of the, of the lovers and the, you know, the triangle and the, the crime you know, motivated by passion and stuff like that, right? And that 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 then sort of, for me, even as, you know, I follow it and get interested in it, it the, with the move at the end, I say, oh, wait a minute, he's just using that. Um, mm-hmm. And, I, oh, and, and, and it's, it's, he, it's my relationship to him that's really at the heart of this story. Right, rather mm-hmm. than my relationship to the characters, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, and you know, in traditional realistic fiction, it's the relationship to the characters is foregrounded, and through that, mm. I get the relationship relationship to the implied author. Mm. Right? But here, it seems to me that it's flipped, yeah. right? And, and and it's the relationship to the implied author. But it all it's only only happens at the end, really. I mean, you know, it looks like I I, I can use the the usual strategies, uh, and I can see okay, you know, the doubleness and so on, right? But but then, you know. At the end, it's like, oh wait a minute! It's all about me and him. Yeah. He's 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 doing this thing for me. He's asking me to reflect on, you know, the way I read fiction and what happens in fiction, and and uh, you know, all these things about the double consciousness and mm-hmm. and and what's invented and what's what's synthetic, what's mimetic, you know, mm-hmm. all, all that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, and all and all of this in a way that doesn't take away from the joys of experiencing and engaging with the generative capacity of the human imagination. Right. So, you know, sometimes we, you know, when we read uh, fiction that has tricks, um, it's, it's fun the first time or even interesting to use to teach to our students, but doesn't go beyond that um and right. to me this like you said this kind of relationship that is being this this feeling of kind of goodwill and this feeling mm-hmm. of being um not tricked but brought into this implied author's mastery is right is really why I keep going back and again and again to this fiction. Right. And I, yeah, and I think there, you know, um, just to go back to what you were saying, like it is also, in, you know, once we get there, we say, oh, how do you do that, right? And then mm-hmm. we go back and we see, we see things the way which we've been prepared, like the, with the title, um, you know, and with the, the, the discourse and the moving in and out, um, you know, because we've already started to, we've already had that in and out of um, being, reading the story that he's reading um, and, you know, reading about him reading. And then the next move is to say, oh, okay, well, you know, and this, the reading about that he's doing actually becomes part of the action mm-hmm. of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, 
What would, so this is something that I think you and I can just play with a little bit. What is, ultimately, what's the kind of worldview that's being conveyed here? So if we were now to kind of, you know, step out of the story for a second and be like, okay, well, we know that the story proper is this, which is a kind of a cliche, but then of course the discourse gives it this extraordinary new shape. Then what, what is our, like, what's, you know, the worldview that's, you know, being conveyed in the end and what kind of ethics, I know that's particular, your, your specific kind of area of specialty, you know, might we kind of take from the at once, you know, grisliness of the acts um, and then at the same time the joyfulness of the play of the narrative constructedness yeah yeah i mean i think the the foregrounding of the author audience relationship has consequences for the way in which i at least would think about the ethics and i'd be interested to hear you know what you think about it because you know, again, reading it sort of as standard realist fiction, and there would be these kinds of ethical questions about, you know, the lovers and the estate manager and so on, and what what is the relationship between there and between them. Obviously, the, the murderer is always going to be ethically problematic. And, mm-hmm. um, but but to some degree, I think... Um, that fades away, and and there's a lot of stuff that we don't know, right? And and um, so it seems to me that that fades away and becomes uh, again this kind of device for mm-hmm. the uh, relationship then between uh, sort of about the the major thing would become uh, what do I think about the ethics of the telling here? Mm-hmm. How, yeah. how does Cortezar do that, and what's What's you know what what's the ethical dimension of um, the mm-hmm. relationship he's trying to set up with his audience? Yeah, and I think you know that's that's positive partly because yeah. we can look back and and see the craft and so on, and then mm-hmm. to say okay, you know, not just that, but the, all these invitations then to to think about the power of fiction yeah. and how it works, you know, and. Yeah. and my experience of this story and how does it relate to my other stories and, mm-hmm. and so on. And, and he's opening that up in this, in this rich way. And I think, you know, especially 1964, mm-hmm. right, this is going to be a lot fresher yeah. than, yeah. you know, because he's, had, he's influenced so many people after him, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we've had other kinds of, you know, metafictional things mm-hmm. which have become, you know, we get, get more used to. Yeah, when I when I sort of think back in 1964 and think about, oh wow, this is really, mm-hmm. you know, he's bre- he's breaking so much of it, but he's um, you know breaking so much of the standard things, but he's doing it in this way that really has these kind of rich payoffs. Yeah, no, um, I am completely in agreement, and if if I were to even break it down <clears throat> uh, into the kind of different traditions of study of ethics, I would say that. Uh, just like you, I would say that it moves from moves us out of that space of judgment that would be, say, deontological. You know that mm-hmm. you know uh, yeah. what's right is right and wrong and wrong and forever right. and eternity, right. um, and and 
pushes us into that more generative Aristotelian virtue ethics space um, in by by the very craftfulness of the fiction that fiction can do and go anywhere, but also, um, 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 you know, exactly the kinds of things that you were just talking about that were exciting and interesting. Um, I, I also was thinking as you were talking that, you know, positioning this within time and the time of its creation and then mm -hmm. some of its reactions. We mentioned John Barth earlier, and of course he famously wrote about the literature of exhaustion um, right. and, and then later the literature of replenishment. And for Barth, actually, it was the boom writers, the Latin American writers like Cortazar and Borges and others who mm. were, for him, the heartbeat uh, you mm -hmm. know, of fiction at a time when right, he was right. very much like fiction's dead. Like I, I don't right. know what else to do with it. Now. Right, right, and it's kind of realism dead. I mean, that's isn't that? Yeah, that's really what he's he's his after there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the other thing I mean is before uh, I don't want to leave uh, entirely the the sort of the ethics of the told in mm -hmm. the sense of you know we can think about the fact of the sort of the privilege of the estate manager the mm. and the, uh, mm -hmm. you know I think there's a class element here that yeah. that's important and then and then what's he doing with sort of the relationship of that kind of privilege and and maybe a kind of escapism mm -hmm. of of the privileged class you know to mm -hmm. be reading something thrilling or something you know and then and then it turns out to oh wait a minute you know uh, <laughs> You're not so separate from that. Uh, you're not, you know. Um, yeah. This could this could come back, you know. I so love I, that. I think it's I think it's not an accident, right? That yeah. this is the way the um, ontologies uh, interpret. Yes. Yes. I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up, Jim. And it's something that um, I've thought about, but haven't articulated as you just did. But yes, this kind of wonderful as part of the worldview generated from the content we do have you know a kind of um class rights back or fights back or right. you know yeah i love that yeah. it's it's really yeah yeah but again and again you know it's not heavy and we don't know about the class of the lover or, yeah you know any of that but but i think then it, it also invites us to go back to the idea of Okay, well, what about our own reading of, of fiction? And, mm -hmm. are, you know, are we, are we, you know, maybe, you know, and I suppose if you extend the thematizing, it's like, well, you know, there's a kind of challenge there to say, don't just uh, put your book down, right? I mean, this, the, the, what happens in, in what you read <laughs> in fiction can have consequences, you know, mm -hmm. um, for for the rest of your life. You know. <laughs> yeah, I you think know. Maybe. I think he's, he's playing with that, right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, whenever we we sit ourselves comfortably in the high back of an armchair covered in green velvet, we should be checking over our shoulders every <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> right. right. Well, yeah, but maybe not so much for someone with a knife, but for all right. Well, how does this relate to yeah. to other things? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can um, just say this. I, I think this is, oh my gosh. I mean, I, I love, you know, I, I 
teach this as much as as frequently as I can. And um, the last time I taught it was at the Great Books Summer Program at Stanford, and I taught it to um, seventh and eighth graders. Uh, uh. Um, and it was of all the stories, the n- the number one hit. And uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. there's just something about this that you know gets kids excited about reading fiction. Yeah, 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 and I think you know some of the economy that you you talked about in the beginning is very much there, and it's it it's so artful, and yet it's uh, it's it's not you know saying hey look mom writing you know it's just sort of <laughs> so brilliantly done sentence mm-hmm. to sentence and the the transitions the perspectives and so on and you know the other thing about uh, about the economy and the efficiency that we haven't touched on that we might just before we wind up is the the way in which cortisar works with time and space right so mm-hmm. you know we we have this this space of the estate manager in his room and in his armchair, and you know that's all clearly described and set up. And then in that space, there's the time of his reading, right? And then in the, the time of the reading um, is the time of the read, right? Yeah. Uh, so what's ha- what's happening between the, the between the lovers, right? And then then the time of you know the male lovers. Um, traveling to that to that space right and then so at the end that the time and the space converge in the uh, interpenetration of the ontologies mm. it's totally brilliant right yeah and it's got it's got to it's got to go that way and you know and it does and and it's just kind of you know unobtrusive i think um yeah you know, it's interesting. I think it's um, to 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 kind of go a little bit further on this. We see actually the the brilliance is in the way that Cortazar, we might say, dynamizes or the dynamization of space. Yeah, and then the spatialization of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they're not, of course, separate, but they're they're controlled or manipulated, if you will, um, you know, differently according to the devices, the shaping, the, the syntax that he uses. Right, right, yeah, and I think those that last sentence there, you know, about where he's describing the door of the salon, the knife in the hand, the light from the great windows. It's there's, I think, a nice illustration of what you're saying about the kind of convergence, convergence of space and time, um, in in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and and then the disruption of it because of the ontology. Uh, you know, Absolutely, interpenetration. Yeah. So here again, where we've like covered just in the story, we've brought in narrative theory, ethics, uh, like aesthetics, cognitive you know, uh, approaches, affective theory, um, all to kind of widen and deepen our understanding of how this fiction and, and of course, other fiction works. Um, I'm just going to, another plug, like, that's 
precisely why I'm still, even if it's not something explicitly foregrounded in my in my theoretical book work, it is always omnipresent. That is, narrative yeah. theory is always always omnipresent because it affords this richness that we just kind of went on in our little journey here. Yeah, right. I, I hope you're preaching to the choir of our listeners, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that we all, we all, that's why we're here, right? To, to yeah. talk, you know, to sort of use the narrative theory to help us, uh, you know, appreciate and, and get more out of um, some of these really remarkable uh, narratives that um, humans have, uh, you know, um, crafted over the years. So, And then, you know, the, the final thing I want to mention and encourage people is not only to read the story, but if they haven't, you know, to read more Cortazar and then mm -hmm. see, you know, and then begin to think about kind of how to compare and is it the same implied author or is there is there a continuity of parts of Cortazar as Bizarre, implied yeah. author, you know? Right, right, yeah. No, that's great. All right, well, that's, that's a, I think, maybe a good note to end on. Um, so, Frederick, I want to thank you again. Uh, it was, I really enjoyed the discussion. I think... Uh, you asked me maybe more questions than I asked you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think we got your 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 perspective came through. I hope, um, which is you know what often my my goal, a big part of my goal is to um, get their guest perspectives. Um, but thank you for asking me those questions and uh, letting I'll, letting I'll, me hold forth for a little bit. All in the uh, spirit of dialogue and knowledge making Jim right right yeah okay well again um, thank you and uh, thanks to our listeners and uh, we're happy to get feedback um, at, on Twitter at PN Ohio State or on our Facebook page uh, Project Narrative I just wish everyone happy reading happy reading